Hi, I'm UFC commentator John Gooden. What's up, guys? This is CFFC middleweight champ Aaron Jeffrey. Hey, I'm Mitch Chilson, and you are listening to SC Facts Speaks 2. SC Facts Speaks 2. Okay, it's an honor and a pleasure to be joined by this man today. Man, I look up to a lot in this sort of broadcasting media world. Um, Michael Chiarello, The Voice. How you doing, man? Steve, it's great to finally talk to you, mate. Thank you very much. That's awesome, man. Um, a lot of times when you get interviewed, do you do people just ask you to just throw off all the catchphrases? Is that something you get? or? Yeah, I, I get the same question over and over. How did Goodnight Irene come about? How did Big <laughs> Kabosh come about? um stories that are very well very well documented but it's okay i don't mind people asking it because i guess when you become known for a, a catchphrase or several catchphrases uh people want to know the origin of them i've heard those stories um so i'm not going to go into that um one catchphrase you didn't mention that i like smack bang mm. i like that one you know that's that's a good question i've never been asked about that one and i actually don't know where i got <laughs> that from it, i think it's just something that I said one day, and um, I really love onomatopoeias. And for those people who don't know what an onomatopoeia is, it's a word that reads the same as it sounds. So like smack or bang, you know, so when you when you read the word, you can hear the sound that accompanies it. And smack bang is an onomatopoeia, you know, because it's almost like watching those old Batman um tv yeah. shows where yeah. the little bubble pops up Ooh. when batman or robin hits someone he says smack bang you know so i think uh I, I said it one day maybe 20 years ago and it sort of just stuck and it really doesn't describe anything but um you know when i say it, you get you get a, a visual in your mind of that sort of batman-esque you know hitting someone or striking someone yeah well you mentioned obviously good night arena at the start at the start there your wife's name is Irene, but that's not where it comes from, right? That's that's no, you know, there. that's that's a freaky coincidence. Um, I I began saying goodnight, Irene, in my first ever commentary. I did as a sixteen-year-old doing track and field athletics um, in nineteen ninety-one, and it sort of just stuck. I started using it in 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 fight sports, and people liked it, so I, I kept it going. Um, I first used it in fight sports in nineteen ninety-four. And I didn't meet my wife until 2009. It was just one of those freaky things that of all the girls' names in all the world that I meet that I end up marrying, it's a, it's a girl named Irene. So, you know, they always say the universe brings you what you want. And I'd been screaming the name Irene for, God, almost 20 years. And, you know, lo and behold, the universe you know, delivers me a, a girl named Irene to marry. Yeah. That's for fate, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know I said we weren't going to do the catchphrase and questions and we've now done two or three minutes on the catchphrases. So you can, <laughs> so you can breathe now. That's it. There's no more catchphrase questions. Thank you, Steve. Um, Thank you. <laughs> obviously, you're down in Melbourne at the minute where you live. Um, how's the Australian summertime treating you down there? Look, it's been nice. It's been a lovely summer. Hasn't been overly hot. Um, hasn't been overly wet. It's been really nice in between. A lot of fun times at the beach and, you know, swimming with the kids and getting around and, 
uh, with pretty much Melbourne opening up again as far as the the COVID rules go. Uh, it's been a great summer with you know the cricket and and the and the the, the soccer and you know, the Melbourne Cup and all the other, the other tennis, obviously, all the other sports that are here during this season. Uh, it's been a wonderful summer. It really has. And we've been opened up again and been able to enjoy ourselves. Um, so we'll get straight into it. Your new book, The Commentators, if we can still call it a new book, it's been out a little while now. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Just give us first the general overview of the book. Well, I'd always wanted to write a book about sports commentary because, I, you know, in addition to being a sports commentator myself, I'm just a huge commentary nerd. I mean, I love, I'll, I'll watch sports I don't even like just to hear how they're commentated. When I'm driving around in my car, you know, um, picking the kids up from school or wherever it may be, I'll put horse racing on the radio. And I'm not a horse racing fan. I don't bet on races. I don't know anything about horse racing, but I love listening to the commentators. And as I was researching this book, um, back in 2020, I discovered that 2021 was actually the 100-year anniversary of the profession of sports commentary. The first ever live sports commentary was done on radio in uh, 1921 on April 11 uh, by a guy called Florence Gibson out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He commentated a boxing match, a lightweight boxing match or featherweight boxing match on um, KDKA radio. And uh, so I thought, wow, what a great year to release a book on the 100th anniversary of the profession, looking at all the best sports calls from history and then getting input from some of the best sports commentators on the planet, analysing all these various commentaries. And it came together into, into a fabulous book that's been very well received. I uh, went to number one on the Amazon bestsellers list and I'm, I'm very happy with how it came up. Like full disclosure, I haven't read the book yet. I want to. So that's definitely on my list. Um <laughs> One thing, I was listening to a bit of your other book, um, Goodnight Arena, earlier today. Um, you talked a bit about how you first got into broadcasting with the work experience at the radio station. But what part, was there a moment when you realised that, like, commentary or that, because you weren't originally wanting to go into broadcasting. That wasn't your goal. You wanted to be an architect. Um, was there a moment when you realised that commentary was your destiny? Uh, there was a moment I realised when broadcasting is what I wanted to do and not architecture when I went to do that work experience stint at Triple M radio station here in Melbourne. But as far as doing commentary, you know, my first commentary, as I said earlier, was track and field when I was 15 or 16 years old. And I just did it as a means to wag school, to be honest with you. I had no interest in commentating. A bunch of mates said, let's you know, jump on the commentary team for, for track and field at Olympic Park and we'll get the afternoon off school. And they let me commentate a couple of races and I, I sort of had a little bit of a talent for it. And then I started doing some soccer or football commentary and, you know, uh, some, um, some other sports and just sort of found I had a knack for it. And really, I, I enjoyed the immediacy of it. I think that's what I liked about broadcasting was the immediacy of it in that you, you do the commentary and it's there, it's live, it's the pressure of it. It's also the joy of talking to, you know, back then on radio would have been you know, thousands of people these days on TV, millions of people. And you're, you know, you're producing something that's compressed into a sliver of time, you know, whether it be a two hour or four hour broadcast that you've got to try and do seamlessly and flawlessly. And the feeling at the end of that, it's a feeling of relief of joy and also a little bit of disappointment, but a good disappointment in that, as a commentator, you're always striving for perfection, but every commentator will tell you, Stephen, they have never done a perfect commentary. It just, 
it doesn't exist. We all try and do our best. We try and gain perfection, but you, you can never attain it. Be always trying to do that. That's, that's always your goal. And so it's all those things sort of wrapped into one um, that, that appealed to me about, about commentary. Uh, and I think also because I grew up with a love of professional wrestling, uh, my favorite pro wrestling commentator was Gorilla Monsoon, um, who I mentioned in all my books. And I think that commentary gave me the chance to do what my heroes of the wrestling world, you know, Gorilla Monsoon, Jesse Ventura, Bobby the Brain Heenan, Vince McMahon would do on WWF broadcasts, you know, these larger than life uh, over the top commentaries. And I, I could do that on radio and then later on TV myself. And I, I was sort of able to, you know, in a way bring my imaginative WWF world that I loved as a kid into the real world of commentary and combine that to, to produce my own, my own sort of style. Um, you mentioned wrestling there and I was going to bring it up a bit later in the interview, but I just, I'll bring it up now. Um, I go on your Twitter. It's just all old school wrestling. I love it. <laughs> I still love it. You know, I, I got WWF Network, WWE Network, um, for that very reason. I still love watching the old wrestling. You know, WrestleMania 1 to 10, that was my era. Um, I still go back now and I watch the old Saturday night main events from back then. Um, I still watch the old WrestleManias. And it's just, it just it gives me a feeling of nostalgia. It takes me back to my childhood. I still get those emotions you know, watching, you know, Hulk Hogan and Macho Man from WrestleMania 5 and Hogan Warrior from 6 and, you know, Hogan Slaughter from, from, from 7 and, you know, Macho DiBiase from 4 and all those sort of times. And um, it's, it's a nice feeling, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful, warm part of my life. And I think that anything that allows you to step into a time machine and go back to those formative years in your life is 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 good it's positive and that's what it does for me and also i get to continually revisit gorilla monsoon and and and, mm -hmm. and vince mcmahon these two great play-by-play commentators that i absolutely adore and um you know i i still learn a lot from them even though their, their commentaries were you know back in the 80s early 90s i learned a lot about their delivery and about how they could sell um these events and even though they were scripted events just the way these guys could could sell storylines it is still very important for me to see how they how they you know were able to use these storylines because storytelling in, in any commentary, particularly in fight sports commentary, is so very important. And sure, the sports that I'm commentating aren't scripted, but the stories are very real. And as a commentator, I need to find a way to sell those stories. So anything I can learn from other commentators, you know, I, I take um, on board and, and I, I try and implement it. Have you ever had any offers to do professional wrestling commentary? Because I don't know if you know, but Jimmy Smith is now the lead commentator on Monday Night Raw. Um, have you ever had any offers like that? Not from WWE. I never have. Um, I've done pro commentary before, pro wrestling commentary. Uh, most notably, um, Ultima Lucha, which was a uh, Mark Bennett oh, production. I remember Mark that. Bennett I, production. I remember right. that now, yeah. Great. Ultima Lucha was a fantastic product. Mark Burnett, the same people that did The Contender, um, Survivor, uh, the Apprentice, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, won you know, over 50 Emmy Awards. Anyway, um, I'd done the contender for them and some other stuff. And when it came, the season finale of Ultimate Lucha in their first season, uh, Mark Burnett contacted me and said, can you commentate the finale, their, their WrestleMania? Mm -hmm. And so I went to Boyle Heights in Los Angeles and I commentated that alongside Matt Stryker. Uh, it was prime time on Al Ray Network. Um, Robert Rodriguez's network it was the number one rating show on the network at the time. And we, we, we knocked it out of the park. Um, it's one of my favorite commentary memories. 
it was one of my best commentaries I thought I ever did. And, you know, again, I just got to live a part of my childhood uh, on the show. Um, all the fights, all the matches were great. We had Vampiro on there against Pentagon. Um, we had um, um, Alberto El Patron, who's you know, Alberto Del Rio, who was in the WWE. Uh, we had Johnny Morrison, uh, who was Johnny Mundo in El- Ultima Lucha, now Johnny Morrison in WWE. So uh, Ricochet now in WWE, he was uh, um, uh, Prince Puma back then on Ultima Lucha. So so many great guys who were on their way up and I got to call them and it, it was a fabulous, fabulous show. Great memory. I think a lot of wrestling fans really like, although it was only a few years ago, they really romanticized like Lucha Underground, Ultima Lucha. It was a really great show. And like some well, of the them- way they shot it was, yeah. was, was so different to anything else. It was all again about storytelling. They shot it like a soap opera. Yeah. And if, you know, if your viewers have never seen it before, please do go online and try and download yeah, it's Ultimate, Ultimate Lucha or Lucha Underground. Um, Ultimate Lucha was their finale, but it's shot like a soap opera. You know, the storylines are like you're watching, uh, you know, a, a soap and then you have the matches and it was something unique because, you know, Mark Burnett always brings something different to the table and their production values were really second to none. Yeah. Some of like the way they shot some of the backstage stuff, like obviously in say WWE, it's just general like sports stuff, but it's just so creative. And I was, and Dario Cueto, excellent character. Just get that in. Oh, there. he was he was fantastic. I loved working with him. A really smart guy. I got to spend time with him backstage, obviously, and uh, we, we managed to chat a lot. But very talented uh, wrestlers, uh, very dedicated crew, talented crew. It was, like I said, one of my fondest memories and something to this day that if I want to watch something I did a good commentary on, I'll, I'll put on, um, you know, Ultima Lucha and go, yeah, that was a, that was a good one. You still watch a lot of modern wrestling because I know obviously you mentioned some names there. You know, I do now and then. My my son, my seven year old son, uh, gets into it a little. Uh, we watch a few of the pay per views when WrestleMania comes around. We we'll watch it. We just watched uh, Royal Rumble a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's certain guys that he likes to follow, and I like to follow um, some of the guys who, who are who are friends of mine in, in WWE, um, and also at one championship now uh, working with two recently former WWE employees. Uh, our producer, Mike Mansouri, um, left the WW after 12 years. And our executive producer, um, John Scheller, was also with the WWE. So it's nice that even when I'm on the road with one, uh, you know, Mike Mansouri and I will often talk about WWE and go back to the old WWF days and reminisce. And, you know, it, it's fun to, to throw our, our old wrestling memories around. And obviously last year we saw the one on TNT show. So it looked for a little bit like there might have been some sort of deal with AEW there, but not to be, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm not sure quite what happened there. We were doing a little bit of cross-promotion stuff with AEW and um, the time on TNT was short. It was a good time and hopefully introduced us a lot more to American audiences. And, you know, hopefully it's something we, we may be able to do again. I'm not asking you to, like, necessarily be critical of your employers here, but what do you think happened with the TNT deal? Um, it's a good question, man, you know. I can't answer it because I really don't know what makes, I mean, our ratings weren't terrible. That's the thing. I think we rated inside the top hundred. If I remember, we had four shows in four weeks. Um, We were on the back of AEW. So I think we rated pretty well. Um, Whether or not mixed martial arts is something that TNT was looking for, was not looking to pursue um, I'm honestly not quite sure. From one's perspective, we gave it our best shot. I think we delivered four very good shows. 
Unfortunately, some of the fights went a little bit screw with. Um, Eddie Alvarez. You know, with what happened with, with Rug Rug, what happened with Eddie Alvarez. I mean, these are things you, you can't plan for and maybe they 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 damaged a little bit. But then, you know, stuff like Marlon, um, like um, um, Adriana Moraes yeah, when, he, when he knocked out Demetrius Johnson, you know, that was a highlight. There were some great highlights on the shows. Um, I'm, I'm not privy to the behind-the-scenes workings um, with one and, and TNT or any of the other broadcasters that they may be looking at um, in the US. So I can't really answer that one. You're on a little bit of a tangent there. There's a couple more things I want to touch on the book, if that's okay. Um, you talked a little bit about the process of what inspired you, but actually writing the book itself, what was that like for you? Because I think you talked to a lot of different people in that process, didn't you? It was great. A lot of research went into it. You know, a lot of sports events watched and analysed. And I, I, I contacted um, a lot of the best commentators in the world, and they all came on board. Um, from a British perspective, you'll all know Peter Drury, who I think is the best football commentator in the world. Um, John Murray from the BBC Radio, who I think is the best radio football commentator in the world. He does the Olympics and all the stuff for BBC, their number one guy. Um, Vin Scully, who's probably recognised as the greatest commentator of all time. You know, he's so he's so famous that, you know, Scully and Mulder in the X-Files, Scully was named after this guy, Vin Scully. And at 94 years old, he contributes to the book. You know, Tim Neverett, World Series, LA Dodgers um, uh, commentator, um, guys that have done, you know, 10 Olympic Games, horse racing commentators, all the, all the best guys in the world wanted to come on board and, and be a part of the book because it's rare to have a book on sports commentary. And I'm really glad with the way it came together and researching it was such a joy. It was a pleasure to write and research and edit. And um, it was a really joyful process. And when you're doing a book, there is nothing worse than thinking, oh, because, you know, when you write a book, you, you, you read it at least 100 times. You go over it with a fine tooth comb. And you know you're not doing a good job if you're cringing at the thought of, oh, I've got to read chapter five. I don't like chapter five. I've, I've been through chapter five 99 times. He's number 100 and you're going through the paces. But when you're looking forward to reading it again for the hundredth time, you go, okay, I know I'm on a good thing here. And um, I really got that feeling writing the book. I, I never got sick of you know reading it even a hundred times. Yeah. Um, obviously, this isn't your first book, as we know. Um, but what were some of the differences between writing a book on a topic like sports commentary compared to writing Good Night Irene, your memoirs? Good Night Irene had to go to a very different place because it's very personal. You know, I opened up a lot of about personal things in the book, and I had to also trigger my memory. Um, my memory is good for some things and not good for other things. And a lot of things, especially from early on in my life, I'd forgotten until I managed to go deep and pluck those memories out and finally get the chance to talk about them and things I hadn't spoken about before, bullying and overcoming adversity and, and self-image problems and, and stuff like that. Of course, in the commentators, uh, not much of that came into play, just a little bit of it. It was more about other people rather than writing about myself. So two completely different approaches to the books, but you know, both very memorable experiences. You're saying both memorable experiences, both obviously tough experiences to have to write a book, but um, which one is easier? Is it easier to maybe write about something personal, but because it's personal, it might be a bit trickier or to- No, I think a... it's easier. I think it's easier to write about the personal one. Yeah. Um, the thing with the commentators, what made it hard is I knew that, you know, you want to write for for- people who are going to read the book, the you know, general population. But also I knew that all these great commentators that I had in the book were going to be reading it and expecting 
it to live up to expectation. And I had a lot of them say to me, I'd love to be a part of the book, but please make sure you do me justice. These aren't run-of-the-mill commentators. Like I said, these are the best of the best. I mean, Gordon Bray, maybe the finest rugby commentator in history. Again, Peter Drury, John Murray, Vin Scully, you know, Kenny Rice, Tim Neverett, um, Kathy Rigby, the Olympian, the Tony Award nominee actress. You know, so when you're writing, you know these people are going to read the book. There's a certain level of expectation. Um, so there's a lot of pressure to get it right. And I knew that other commentators around the world would pick up this book and read it. So I didn't want anyone, anyone picking it up and going, oh, yeah, Chevalo wrote a pretty crappy book on commentary. This is not what commentary is about. This is not how you be a commentator. But the fact that they've come back to me and said, like, you know, John Murray said, it's a brilliant piece of work. Peter Drury called it a magnum opus. You know, um, people have called it amazing or brilliant or, you know, the best book ever written on, on, on commentary or broadcasting. Uh, you know, Tim Neverett, who's a professor at Emerson College in Boston, had me guest lecture to his sports broadcasting class at Emerson College, you know, um, because they hold the book in such high esteem. So it was... In that sense, it was harder to write the commentary book because I knew that it would be more finely critiqued by industry peers. I mentioned I was in the guest lecture. I'll just throw in now, I study sports media myself. So that's cool to see that you've done that. That's really interesting. Um, before we get on to some fights, I want to just talk about some general interviewing stuff because I've been interviewing fighters, mainly fighters, for just over a year now. You've obviously done countless interviews for so many years with some of the biggest names in the world um how do you stay motivated when you've when you've already interviewed so many huge names and this can come into it with commentary as well when you've done so many shows how do you keep going how do you stay motivated i've always gotten a kick out of interviewing people it was one of the first things i did when i started in you know, broadcasting and media i wanted to interview people i don't know why i guess when i was younger i was, I was drawn to fame I'm not famed for myself, but being around famous people. Um, I guess you know, when I was young, I was the fat bullied kid, man, who didn't fit in with the cool kids at school, who wanted to fit in. And a way that I could sort of create a niche for myself was I was working on community radio back then and I was getting interviews with sports stars that commercial radios couldn't get. Here I was, 16, 17 years old, interviewing tennis stars and cricket stars and soccer stars and, and things like that. You know, I was interviewing Maradona and Palais and Stefan Edberg and um, Goran Ivanizovic and Sachin Tendulkar and big names like this. I was 17 years old. And that was a cool thing at school. You know, kids would go, geez, Chevalier interviewed this person, met that person, you know, that was cool for me. And then I just enjoyed the process. And the more that I kept interviewing people, the more I really enjoyed the process. When I did the Voice Versus series on Access TV in the USA. Mm. And I interviewed Dana White, Steven Seagal, Michael Jai White, um, Fedor Emelianenko, Sugar Ray Robinson, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan, etc. It was the process I really enjoyed, the research. You know, for two weeks, I would get every material I could on all these guests. I'd read their biographies. I'd watch their other interviews. I'd make sure that what I was asking wasn't the same that everyone else was asking. I made sure I had an icebreaker question to get them comfortable. And I really enjoyed the whole process. And still to this day, if I interview people, um, especially long form interviews, it's the process I really enjoy. Um, you just sort of, you get up for it, you know? Same with commentary. I've done so many commentaries. I've commentated over 7,000 fights. I've done regional commentaries. I've done the biggest commentaries in the world. I've done the Olympics. I've, I've done it all. And no matter if it's two guys you've never heard of or two guys who are super, you know, super famous, 
you just get up for it. It's just internal switch, flicks on, the adrenaline goes, you see the green light, you're on the air and, and you go. You mentioned Steven Seagal there. That's the story I think that really stands out from the Good Night Irene book. Um, but I want to ask about someone else who obviously you have a much closer relationship with than you do with Steven Seagal. What is your craziest Bill Goldberg story? Oh, man. So um, I was a huge Goldberg fan um, back in the WCW days. I mean, everyone was. But that short period there when they were trumping WWE and me and my mates would be Goldberg fans. So to get the chance to meet him and hang out with him when he came to Australia in 1999, I think it was. Um, and we took him out on the town and we hung out all night and um, <laughs> we took him out to a strip joint, I remember, here in Melbourne. And um, there were me, Slam and Sam Greco, the K1 star, a guy called Mario Florides, who was a Mr. Australia bodybuilding champion and a kickboxing promoter who passed away last year called Tarek Solak. And we took Bill out on the town and to some strippers. And um, <laughs> I must've been really uptight back then because I remember Bill, you know, with a couple of strippers on his lap, looking over at me saying, Hey, ambassador, cool down, you know, chill out a little bit, get one of these girls. And it was just fun hanging out with Bill. And I remember it was the latest I'd ever stayed up because we didn't get back to his hotel until seven o'clock in the morning. And just cause we were out all night, just partying and, having a couple of drinks and just letting our hair down. Um, and you know, it, was, it was a great memory. And the next night we took Bill out to dinner in Ligon Street here in Melbourne, which is very famous for its Italian eateries and at a restaurant called Piccolo Mondo. And um, I remember one of the waitresses coming up to him and asking him for an autograph and she pulled her top down and uh, he signed her breast. And uh, she later went and got his autograph tattooed on her breast so <laughs> i guess um you know back then bill was uh, the biggest name in the wrestling world so yeah. some of the perks of the trade i guess you could say and you got to just like tag along that sounds great i got to tag along you know a, a lot of my early years if you've ever seen the movie almost famous um the cameron crow film um a lot of my early years were, were like that man it was just being around famous people that I was interviewing and being able to tag along for a lot of these experiences that were very surreal. Now looking back at it. Yeah. Um, switching gears now, talk about some fights. Um, we saw the one card on Friday. Obviously you weren't there because of COVID. Um, was that weird for you to miss the show and watching it at home? It was, I really wanted to do it. I tested positive for COVID the week before. And I said to my, my whole family did, and I said to my producer, I'm going to try and beat it. You know, you've got to test before you fly out to Singapore at the airport. Then you test again when you land in Singapore. I said, I'm going to try and beat the PCR test. You know, I'll see how I go. But it came three days before I was yeah. meant to fly out. And Mike Mansuri rang me and he said, listen, you know, these tests are so strict that you're just not going to, we know you're not going to pass it. And even if you happen to, you're just not going to be up to commentate. And the truth was, I wasn't, you know, I'd lost my breath and had trouble breathing and was fatigued. So I had to miss the show. And it was weird watching it without, you know, being there. And it's strange. And uh, Steve Dawson did a commendable job with Mitch. But, um, you know, I've only ever missed a couple of shows because I've been sick that one and, and one other one in Jakarta. And it, yeah, it's weird when you're not there because, you know, you feel you're part of that product and you should be a part of it. And it's strange when you're not. You mentioned Mitch there. I just want to say, awesome guy I've interviewed him for. Great guy. Yeah, Mitch is great. Full of good <laughs> stories. Very good commentator. Highly knowledgeable. And I, I really enjoy working with yeah. the Dragon. You guys have a great partnership. What do you put that down to? 
you know what it is? Um, it's just being loose enough with each other. Yeah. You know, um, it's just time. We've now been together for almost five years. So it's getting to know each other. Um, I know at the start, I have a very different rhythm to a lot of commentators. And Mitch had always worked with Steve Dawson. And Steve is very, how would I say, very traditional commentator in that his rhythm, if you listen to it, you can hear where his pause points are going to be. And Mitch was used to the rhythm and the pause points on Steve. And when I came in to start commentating one, I'm a lot more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm more over the top, I guess. You know, I'm a lot more high voltage and I don't have those natural pause points because I'll talk a lot more. I'll commentate the action a lot more. So Mitch never knew really when to come in. And it took a little time to get used to where to come in with me and where to get those points where we weren't overlapping over each other and talking over each other. Um, we have a lot of tricks that we use to do that and make sure we don't talk over the top. So it's just sort of time spent together that allows that chemistry, that chemistry to become natural and knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses in commentary, Mitch will know where he needs to come in more, where my weaknesses are. I know where his weaknesses are, where I'll need to come in more. And, you know, we, we, we balance each other out that way. And plus it's also, having fun yeah. you know um it sounds I'm, like I'm you guys have fun yeah and i'm big for having fun with commentary and you know loosening mitch up a lot as well and saying mitch let's just enjoy it let's let's have fun if we want to rib each other a little bit let's rib each other a little bit if we want to have a laugh let's have a laugh if we want to go over the top let's go over the top let's let's not just be stay let's not just be formal you know no one wants that let's 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 make this a unique brand of commentary that people will know when they hear it in the background oh one championship is on because i know that style of commentary they they could not mistake it for any other part and parcel commentary of any other sports show yeah i watch a lot of sports i watch a lot of mma obviously combat sports i think you guys do that i can it's instantly recognizable you guys have you guys seem to have a different energy i'll just that it is it's 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 just different i mean Everyone has a different style. I, yeah, I won't criticize anyone. I like listening to UFC commentary. They use a four-man booth, um, but they don't do a lot of play-by-play. You know, they'll talk like their mates talking at a pub about the fights. And that style works. It's great to listen to. Um, whereas our style will rely more on play-by-play. I'll call the action as it happens. And then Mitch will analyze the action as it happens. You know, so it's a different style again. Um, you know, and we'll intersperse some 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 humor humor in there if we can. Um, everyone's got a different style of commentary, and uh, yeah, it's nice to listen listen to different styles because it'd be a boring world if everyone commentated the same. Obviously, we saw with that card the whole situation with Bibiano and Lineker. Um, but it looks like we've got a new date for that, March 11th. It looks like. Um, what do you think of that matchup? I, I, I was happy that one was on that card because yeah. I said to Mike, my producer, when Mike rang me, my producer, he said, look, you're not going to do the show. Stay at home and rest. He goes, that's that's the bad news. I go, what's the good news? He goes, the good news is, he goes, John Lineker has tested positive for COVID. He goes, the good news is, I know you really wanted to commentate that one. So the good news for you is you'll get to do it. It's going to be moved to another show. I'm like, oh, yes. Okay, cool. Because I've been commentating Bibiano since like 2009, 2000, no, earlier maybe 2007 since dream days. I really wanted to do this one. And there's been so much smack and bad talk. And these guys genuinely do not like each other. Um, I think Bibiano is going to beat him. Um, a lot of people, most people think Lineker is going to beat him. It's a great fight. It's rare that we see, especially in one where there's so much respect between the athletes that we see bad blood. And 
that's not scripted. It's genuine bad blood. They don't like each other. So I can't wait to call it. And um, I think it's going to be fireworks. It's going to be nasty. Yeah, now you mention that, I just think you you don't see that kind of trash talk in one that often. So it's, it's different for you guys. Those clips you see of, on the promo videos of them trash talking, that was an interview I did with them um, a few months ago. And I sort of, I, you know, I messaged them both before. And I said, listen, guys, um, none, of the, none of the respect stuff out the window. I know you guys don't like each other. All right. It's a Brazilian feud. You're different. Your, your set of morals are different. Your lifestyles are different. Your ideologies are different. Let that come out in this interview. I don't want a boring interview where you say, oh, uh, we're going to have a great fight. Um, you know, I hope my opponent brings his A game. Boring. No one wants that. Be honest. If you don't like John Lydica Bibiano, be honest. Say it. Say why he pisses you off. Say why you don't like him. I said to Lineker, say why you've got, you know, you, you don't like Bibiano. Let us know the truth. And I got that out of them, you know, and, and it's been used on all the promo videos because it is juicy. And as an interviewer, you've got to do that. Otherwise, these guys fall into the trap of just going through the, the routines that they, they're inbuilt and we're not getting the full emotion of the story. There's a story to tell. And the story to tell here is that Lineker thinks Bibiano's over the hill. It's time for a change of guard and he plans to knock him out. And Bibiano's like, I'm still the master. You're not going to take this. I've had it for so long. And you're a one pun, you know, one trick pony with your punches, and I'm going to show you. So, um, you know, you want to feel that heat. Um, I want to touch on because obviously there's the COVID situation there. This whole COVID period we had with one last year. Um, how did you find commentating during that period? Because it's not just the no fans thing, but you guys were comment. You did the tape delay fight, so you were doing what two, three shows in one day sometimes. How was that? Um, so I think we ended up doing. Um, I want to say two sessions. Tape delay, we did two, two sessions. It was three shows each. So we did six tape delay. They were the ones out of Bangkok. We were doing um, one show early afternoon, my time, taping another one after that. And then the third one would be live. So two delayed, one live. So we'd have the live one. And we bank the two delayed ones and show one the week after, one the week after that. Then we do the same again. We bank two tape delays and do one live. Um, it was awkward. It was a necessity, but it was awkward because, again, you're not there. You don't get the atmosphere. Also, when you're doing stuff over internet, um, you know, over the system of remote commentary, there can be glitches, there can be delays in the commentary, things like that that are out of your control. Uh, also, I'm not there with Mitch. I, I can't read Mitch's reactions. I can't tap him on the knee and go, talk now. You know, I need a break. I need to take a drink. You talk. I can't do that when it's remote. You know, so we had to be even more careful not to talk over each other. So that chemistry, that that repartee isn't there between us. Very difficult. Then we started, you know, commentating the empty arenas, which brings a whole new set of challenges in itself. We were up high in the stadiums and nosebleeds, not near the circle at all. So it was it was weird being up there. Inside an empty, quiet arena was weird, especially when you've got a loud voice like I do. Um, but we got used to it and um, made it work. And thankfully, now we're getting crowds back in the Singapore Indoor Stadium. And we're hoping that by 1x on March 26th, um, we may have um, you know more than half filled. You know, might be maybe seven, eight, ten thousand people in there. Um, how's the voice after those man those manic three shows in a row? How's the voice after those sessions? You just got to watch it. 
um, not not blast. That, that was a difficult thing too, and it's a good question, Stephen, because you blasted out on show number one. You've lost it for show number two. The live show comes and you're yeah. recovering it. So you just had to be careful not to go too over the top too much and just sort of guide it. But I'll, I'm used to doing marathon shows. Um, you know, we used to do Dream and Dynamite back in the day, especially Dynamite. They were eight-hour shows. So I sort of got used and I've got little tricks that I use on how to keep my voice fresh and sounding good and just knowing not to overexert it in fights that don't require it and sort of, you know, wait till the marquee fight to maybe take it up that notch if you know you've got to do, you know, eight, nine hours of commentating. Yeah, great. Um, 40 days away, 1X. Massive card. Um, biggest card in one history, in your opinion? Uh, on paper at the moment, looks like it, definitely. Um, the Century card was huge. The TNT cards were huge. Um, the New Breed cards were big as well, but this is big. Uh, just look at the talent on there. I mean, Rod Tang DJ itself is just massive. Angela Stamp is, is massive. Um, so many big fights on that one. Uh, yeah, I'd say biggest of all time. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that Rod Tang Mighty Mouse first. How crazy is this? How do you just like, if you're just gonna look, sit back and assess that fight, what do you what do you see? Given the hybrid rules, com- there's only been I think one of these fights before in history, and I commentated it many years ago. It was uh, Shinya Aoki versus um, Jinotsu. So Jinotsu was a K1 kickboxer. Aoki is you know the legend Aoki, alternating rounds, and uh, surprisingly, Jinotsu knocked out Aoki in the mixed martial arts round after it got out of the kickboxing round. I think it's going to happen again. I think Rod Tang's going to knock out Demetrius Johnson in the MMA round. Yeah. I think Demetrius is going to run from him for three minutes in the Muay Thai round. Wouldn't you? Why would you stand toe-to-toe with Rod Tang? TJ says he wants to stand toe-to-toe, but as soon as he gets hit by a leg kick from Rod Tang, he's going to know that's not a leg kick you feel in mixed martial arts. That's a Muay Thai leg kick yeah. from a Muay Thai multi-time world champion. It hurts. Or a Muay Thai elbow hurts. Or getting hit with four ounce gloves, but from a Muay Thai world champion hurts. You ain't never been hit like that before, DJ. He's going to run. Second round, I think he gets knocked out. I don't think he's, you know, he's going to try and take Rod Tang down and maybe expose himself and get KO'd. Um, it's one that's been debated hotly. Mitch thinks that Mighty Mouse is going to tap him out in the second round. And that's the beauty of this sort of fight, Stephen, is that it's so debatable as to who's going to win and when they're going to win. We just know it's not going to go four rounds, it's not going to go distance, can't. Um, because obviously, if you're not thinking it in that much detail, you're like, Oh, Rod Tang in the Muay Thai round, DJ in the MMA rounds, like you said, but it's deeper than that. It's much deeper. I mean, DJ's got to be thinking, I'm just going to wait till this. Yeah, he even says on the trailer, I'm going to drown him when I get the takedown. Well, you're assuming you're going to get the takedown, mm. and we know DJ can take down anyone in mixed martial arts. And we're assuming, okay, Rod Tang's never fought mixed martial arts, so he's going to get taken down easily. Don't forget, though, every round begins on its feet, okay? So first, you've got to get past those strikes. You might shoot him for a double on, on Rod Tang, could expose yourself to a nice knee popping up at you, right? You could look for a body clinch takedown with Rod Tang, expose yourself to all sorts of wickedness on the inside, elbows, knees, punches coming at you. And like I said, in angles and in in in, in in, in, a, in a way that they've never come at you before, you know. Um, if it does go to ground, game over. That's it. Done. It's that easy. No way Rod Tang's going to beat DJ on the ground. It's done. Finished. 
I'm going to sub out DJ. I'm not going to ground and pound out DJ. It's finished, you know. But if it stays in close quarters, I think Rod Tank finishes him. It's so many variables. What's the what's the more definite outcome? Okay, toe to toe or on the ground? Which one can finish earlier? I think on the ground, DJ will finish Rod Tank no problem. Mm-hmm. On the feet, DJ may be able to sustain a little punishment. But the thing is, he can move away. On the ground, you won't be able. To, Rod Tang won't be able to move away. He won't be able to escape. That's the difference. Um, oh man, it's just, um, that's why I'm so excited. It's just yeah. you, you could, we could we could go and have a beer and discuss this at a bar for hours <laughs> and think of all the different scenarios. And it's what makes this a great fight. Yeah. Another great fight in that card, obviously, um, Angela Lee. And I will tell you something. I believe that Rod Tang has been saying behind the scenes that if he knocks out DJ, he wants to go MMA and have a crack at the title straight away. Really? I believe that's what he's been saying around his training camp. Yeah. If he knocks out DJ, especially if he does it in the mixed martial arts round, then you know what? If he does it in the MMA round, could you deny it? Really? Yeah. You know, yeah. you knock out the greatest of all time under his rule set, it'd uh, be awesome. Yeah. Um, obviously, we've got Angela Lee, Stan Fairtex. Like Rod Tang, Mighty Mouse, easily one of my most anticipated fights at the moment. I'm a big Stamford oh. fan in particular. Yeah, for sure. Um, a game split between me and Mitch. Yeah. Mitch thinks Stamp takes her. I think Angela takes her. Um, either way, great fight. Yeah. Stamp uh, has progressed faster than any mixed martial artist I've ever 100%, seen. 100%. And that includes Gary Tonin. Tonin's progress has been amazing but stamp's gone even faster she fights now her defense her takedowns her, her, her takedown defense her ground defense and her offense looks like she's been a veteran of you know five six years not what is it a year and a half in mma whatever it's been for a very short time it's amazing yeah angela coming back after a long absence having given birth you know having been a mom and getting back in the training after that and will there be ring rust has has the time passed her by so many questions are going to be answered. I think Angela's still the queen. I think the queen's going to reign, but Stamp is, brings a lot of problems to the table that Angela hasn't seen before. It's, it's going to be fantastic. You mentioned, obviously, the rise of Stamp. I looked into this. October 2019, Angela Lee's last fight before giving birth. At that point, Stamp Fairtex was 2-0. and Crazy, right? So there you have it. Just over two years in MMA for Stamp Fairtex. Yeah. And yeah. like I said, she's been fighting like someone who's done it for five or six years. You you couldn't tell. You honestly could not tell watching her that she's not a natural mixed martial artist that's been doing this since she was a teenager. Yeah. You, you can't. It's no. just her progress has been phenomenal. How much more does she need to progress, though, to beat Angela? Because beating the people she did in the Adelaide Grand Prix was incredible. Yep. But Angela is a whole different level. Mm. and what Angela is going to turn up. I believe it's going to be an Angela who will stop at nothing to defend that crown she covets so much. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, Obviously, you mentioned the growth of Stamp there again, though. It's like every fight, that grappling is just another step further along. Yeah, the first fight with with um, Rasahina was close. She nearly, she did really well in the grappling, just... We saw what happened at the end. The second fight, she got it back. And then she submitted Ritu Fogat, which is a huge deal. Incredible. Incredible. Um, it's just nuts how she's progressed so fast. And 
she looks like a natural grappler. That's the yeah. thing. You know, know she's a Muay Thai kickboxing world champion, but she looks like a natural grappler. And she's right. She's relying more on her ground now than she is on a striking. And that's the freaky thing. Yeah. You know, um, I can't wait to see what she brings against Angela. I'll be intrigued about the game plan, what it's going to be, whether they think they can match it with Angela on the ground. Um, man, I can't wait. It's, it's going to be awesome. Another fight I want to touch on, and maybe this is burying the lead a little bit after the weekend. We saw Izzy and Whitaker. Obviously, you're a proud Australian man. Big fight for your part of the world. Um, what were your thoughts? Another superb display from Izzy. It was, you know, the middle rounds were, were closer, and um, Whitaker, Whitaker did fantastic. I thought he did you know, obviously better than he did the first time they met. Um, but it's one of those things that Izzy, I think, is always going to have Rob's number. Um, Izzy is just next level. I don't think anyone in that top five touches him. Is it going to be Kananir next? I don't think Kananir touches him. Um, Presents some problems maybe, but Izzy's just too good, man. He's just too slick, too good, too evasive. The length, the reach, the technique, everything about him at middleweight is just he's the best. Um, He went outside the division. He he lost. But that division, I think he's going to own it for a long time. It was just a superb display. It was really a a delight to watch. Um, And most of Izzy's fights are. They're just delights to watch. He doesn't necessarily finish everyone, but even when he's not finishing, the, the clinic he puts on is, is just extraordinary. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's been a little bit of talk after the fight about some of the commentary. So as an expert in commentary, as we know, um, people saying that maybe some of the commentary was biased towards Izzy. Um, do you see that or not? It's hard not to be sometimes, man. Is it biased or is it gushing? You know, it's hard not to gush. When you see an exceptional talent, it's hard not to gush. And that doesn't mean it's biased. It just means that it's hard to sit there and not be gushing and fawning over how bloody good someone's technique is. I have gushed over Georgia Petrosian a lot in the past. And it's not through any bias. You know, it's through the guy's that damn good. You know, how do you sit there and not watch a Wayne Gretzky or a Michael Jordan or a um, uh, um, Hakuho, or you know, or a Demetrius Johnson, or an Israel Adesanya, or a Georgia Petrosian, and not gush a Tiger Woods, and not gush at just how much better they are than everyone else. Um, you know, bias would be if all your commentary is so focused on them that you don't give any airtime to the other guy. And every commentator is guilty of that. We've all done that. But there's a difference between bias and gushing. And I think um, you know, if you're gushing over someone. Um, that that's deserved. So be it, man. And um, yeah, I, yeah, that, that's that's there's a difference. Yeah. All right, I kept you for a while now, so I want to thank you for taking the time today, Michael. Um, it's been a, it's been a real honor to chat to you. Thanks, David. It's been awesome, mate. Thank you cool. so much. Thank you, man.